Hey everybody, it's Eric Torenberg, co-founder, partner of Village Global, a network-driven venture firm. And this is Venture Stories, a podcast covering topics relating to tech and business with world-leading experts. Hey everybody, welcome to another episode of Village Global's Venture Stories. I'm here today joined by a very special guest, Dr. Emily Anhalt, co-founder of COA. Uh, Emily, welcome to the podcast. Thanks so much for having me. Great to be here. Totally. So but by way of introduction, uh, why don't you describe what is COA and uh, how did you sort of navigate the idea maze to, uh, to create it? Sure. So COA is a gym for mental health. We are working to make working on our mental health as modern and accessible as working on physical fitness. And we do this through therapist-led emotional fitness classes and one-on-one therapy. And it's all rooted in community. So our current culture of mental health is very reactive. People tend to be made to feel like they have to wait until things are falling apart to get help. But to me, that's a little like waiting until you're diagnosed with early signs of heart disease to do cardio. It makes a lot more sense to start when everything is mostly fine, build up your resilience to have better mental health in the long run. Uh, and, and why don't you um, give a brief background of, of how, how you came to, to start it and, and the background that, that led to it? Sure. So I'm a clinical psychologist. I've been practicing about 12 years now, but I grew up in Silicon Valley and I've always had an interest in the psychology of the entrepreneur. So in grad school, I started specializing in working with people in tech. And this introduced me to this group of people who, you know, they're fairly high functioning, they're high achieving, smart and capable. And most of them weren't necessarily suffering from any extreme mental health disorders, but they were still struggling. And they still did need more support than they were getting in order to do their work well and live fulfilling lives and have better relationships. So it was through that that I started to think about this reactive mental health culture and that it really needs to change. I wanted to shift the narrative of mental health to being a more proactive practice and to start helping people think about going to therapy or working on themselves the way we think about going to the gym instead of just like going to the doctor. So that's when I started using this term emotional fitness. And um, I did a bunch of research on this idea of emotional fitness. About eight years ago, I interviewed 100 psychologists and 100 entrepreneurs. And I asked them, how would you know if you were sitting across the table from an emotionally healthy person? What would it look like? What would it feel like? And I coded these interviews and out of them came these seven traits of emotional fitness. So an emotionally fit person has self-awareness, empathy, mindfulness, curiosity, playfulness, resilience, and communication. But it's hard to know how to actually build these things in our lives. Like there isn't a lot of information out there about what an emotional push-up is and how we do them. And that's when I met my co-founder, Alexa, and we started talking about what it would look like to create a gym for the mind, a gym for mental health, where we would have people who really know what they're talking about, licensed therapists, supporting people in making small but steady change toward mentally healthy lives. What does that look like? What does an emotional push-up look like? Yes. Or or emotional workout. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it looks like lots of things. So the classes that we do at COA essentially deep dive into these seven traits. So you're going to learn more about self-awareness. You're going to learn more about communication. And within each class, you're practicing. It's sort of a combination of a perspective shift. So how can I think about these things differently combined with a really actionable framework? So how can I actually do these things differently in my life? And then you're practicing with other people. So my belief about mental health is that it should be really rooted in experiential activities and also in relationships. So to me, the true mechanism of healing 
of mental health is relationships. In therapy, it's the relationship you have with the person. In our life, it's the relationships we have with people. And so, you know, we didn't want to use technology to replace the relationship, which I think is what is happening a lot out there right now. We wanted to figure out how to use technology to scale the ability to build these relationships. So in all of our classes, you're practicing with other people in breakout rooms and, you know, taking these things into your lives in an ongoing way. Yeah. It's interesting. The, in the same way that you have a personal trainer who says, Hey, going to hurt your back. If you keep doing this or, you know, your forms off, it'd be great to have either a person or a machine be able to say, Hey, that text is probably going to lead to some, <laughs> some chaos is going to hurt your, your, hurt your, hurt your, your relationship or, you know, you're angry right now and, and should go take a, go do X, Y, Z to, you know, get over that or, Hey, we should you know have this conversation. And is, is that some degree of what, what you're trying to do? Yeah. Although I think, again, you know, if a machine tells you, hey, you're angry, you shouldn't send this, that doesn't help you understand why you're angry and how to shift that anger over time so that you're having healthier, you know, relationships, that kind of thing. So yeah, the idea is how can someone who has a lot of experience working with the human condition, help you think about things from a slightly different perspective, and then work it into your life a little bit differently. So for sure, that's what we're trying to do. And, you know, to give you like a little example of what this might look like in one of our classes, we help people figure out what is it about our frustrations with other people that we can actually learn about ourselves. Like every time I'm frustrated with someone else, what can I learn about myself? And we teach a framework for figuring out what that looks like. And if every time each one of us was frustrated with someone else, we actually pause to figure out what we might be bringing to the situation, it would completely change how we move through our lives and what our relationships look like. Can you, can you give an example of a common situation or, or even uncommon, just, just one example of what that could look like in, in practice? Like I'm frustrated yeah. about X person for Y reason. And that means that about myself that. Okay. Would you, would you be down to do it with me? <laughs> sure. I, I, I can, the example that comes to mind for me, I, I'm just making one up, but you could push for a more serious one is like frustrated someone for not pulling their weight perhaps. So what, what would that say about me? I guess expectations of, yeah. Yeah. Okay. So let's say you're frustrated that, you know, your report didn't do the thing yeah. that they were supposed to do. All right. Yeah. So there are a couple different ways to look at this. When we're frustrated with other people, sometimes we're frustrated with them because they remind us of ourselves in some way. So maybe at some point you didn't always pull your weight or, yeah. you know, you felt like you had to, you know, rely on other people to do things that you really should have been doing. Maybe that resonates with you. Maybe not. Another thing that happens when we're frustrated with other people is there is a jealous or envy situation. So maybe you're like, wow, this person can just not pull their weight and they have me here looking after them and I'm going to end up making sure it's okay. And like, I wish I had someone who was going to make sure everything was okay, even if I didn't pull my weight. Look at all these resources that this person has that I don't have. And then the third one is sometimes when we're frustrated, it's because it reminds us of another situation we've been in. And so we're quicker to anger about that thing than someone else would. So let's say you grew up in a family where your parents really didn't pull their weight, or you had a sibling and your sibling kind of slacked off and you had to do all the work. And so when this person starts to slack off, you're immediately like, oh, I've seen this before. This is terrible. Super frustrated right away. So just by knowing these things, just by knowing what it might be stirring up in us, we can contextualize what's happening and how much of it is really the other person and how much we're bringing to the table. And we can figure out how to move forward in a more thoughtful way. Yeah. And, and one through line, it seems, is just really you know leading with curiosity. Yeah. And curiosity is one of the traits. Totally. Yeah. So I'll, I'll, if you want to, I can share a personal example Please. that I think, because obviously no one likes it when someone's not pulling their weight. But one of the things that I feel frustrated by more than the average person is when someone is not on time when I'm going to meet them in person and I show up at the restaurant and they're not there. Right. Yeah. So when I run through this framework, 
One, is it that I'm not on time? No, I work really, really hard to be on time. So that's not the one that resonates with me. Two is, am I envious that they can show up not on time? And yeah, this resonates with me. I feel like I'm so obsessive about being on time. I wish I were more laid back, go with the flow person. I wish that wasn't such a problem. And then the third one also resonates with me, which is people in my family were never on time. And so I would worry as a young kid, like, are they coming? You know, what's going on here? And so when it happens now, there's a little part of me that's still thrown back to that time way before. That's not, it's not what's happening now, but I still feel it as though it is. So knowing this helps me because then when I show up and someone's not on time, I can say, okay, is it really the, that big of a deal yeah. that they're a few minutes late or am I going through all this stuff inside of myself? Yeah. Well, I just want to say, I'm sorry for being five minutes. Uh, uh, <laughs> <laughs> I realized as soon as I started to give this example, but no, don't worry. There's no, you're remarkable. You, you, you've worked through it. <laughs> no, I'm, exactly. I'm just yeah. So you, w- w- one thing I wanted to pick back up on is you said, you know, you, you sort of have this unique, uh, you know, ec- expertise and then also this unique expertise as it relates to founders. What sort of psychological trends have you noticed that tend to be common uh, within, within founders? Yeah. So I I love working with founders. And part of my fascination with that is it's a unique group of people. I'm happy to talk about some of the things I see in a lot of founders, but also the people who are starting these huge tech companies are having a huge effect on society. You know, I mean, we're using these products all the time. And so if the people who are running these companies are not healthy, then that negatively affects all of us. So the healthier founders are, the better it is for everyone. In terms of some of the common challenges and strengths and, and all of that that I've seen, I'll talk you through a handful. I'll try to be quick with them. So the first one is the idea of work being our identity. You know, the line between our work and our personal life is barely visible. We've tied a lot of our success in life to whether our company succeeds. So it's, you know, it's all we think about. It's all we talk about. The next one is um, an ability to delay gratification. Founders work for 10 years like no one else will, so we can live the rest of our lives like no one else can. You know, we take barely livable salaries and sacrifice our relationships for the 1% chance that we hit a big payoff. Another is a need for autonomy and independence. So a lot of founders just can't even imagine the idea of working for someone else. We want to create our own destiny. But the downside of this is often a hesitance to ask for help or support, which can lead to a lot of problems. The fourth one is a higher instance of mental health struggles and learning disabilities. So is it that mental health struggles lead to becoming a founder or being a founder leads to mental health struggles? I think it's really both. There's um, a sacrifice equals love kind of vibe with founders. So, I mean, this is true throughout our culture, but there's this hustle porn idea in founder life where if you're not willing to give up everything, you must not really love what you're doing. I think that's really problematic. And that tags with terrible at celebrating wins because in founder life, every achieved goal is the beginning of five new goals to achieve. So we're sort of notoriously bad at slowing down and celebrating There's something I call the narcissism imposter syndrome cocktail that I see in founders a lot, which is, you know, we have to think ourselves amazing that we're going to start this thing that's never been done before. And then at the exact same time, most founders are terrified that they have no idea what they're doing and will be exposed at any moment. And then finally, just a desire to make large scale social change. I mean, I'd be remiss in not calling out the founders are an amazing group of people. And I'd say that it wasn't until I became a founder that I really came to understand a lot of these things, even though I had worked with founders for so long. So definitely can empathize in a new way. Yeah, that, that, that makes a lot of sense. What do you, you know, the phrase sort of, you know, chips in sh- on shoulders, puts chips in pockets, or, or this idea that that people who have something to prove are more likely to just go the dis, I guess, work harder and, and work through setbacks. 
and that is somehow correlated with higher likelihood of, of, of being successful. Would you would you push back on on that uh, sort of characterization that some people have? I mean, I guess it depends what you mean by successful. Do I think that that really pushes people to heights they never would have gone to before? Yes, definitely. But it also sometimes comes at a cost. Like, yeah. is the success of a company really the most important thing in a person's life? Sometimes, maybe yes, but other times I think we think the success of our company is going to give us all of the fulfillment and nourishment and autonomy and recognition that we're lacking, or it's going to finally prove something to people in our life that we wanted them to see. And what I've found is a lot of founders get there and they look around and they're like, well, shit, why don't I feel better? This didn't yeah. fix everything. Now what do I do? Because I was so convinced that all I had to do was make a billion dollar company and then I'd feel okay. And that's not always what happens. Yeah, no, totally. And, 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 one thing I just want to tease out is there's sort of there's one conversation that one could have, which is, hey, you you have a, you know we'll just call it a chip on the shoulder, and and that's motivating you at this hypothetical person. You, there's something you could say is, hey, maybe this will help you be more, you know, your company worth more, but it probably won't make you you know feel as happy and um, meaning like as unhappy as you feel now, you'll just you you won't necessarily get any happier once you achieve this this thing. That that's sort of one conversation. Another conversation some people have. I'm curious where you fall on it is actually this chip on the shoulder that you think is, is getting you further is, is perhaps, perhaps you're succeeding in spite of it. And if you were to work through some of these topics and have more of a balanced life, maybe your company would be worth more as well. Um, and those are, those seem like two, two different I- I- implications. And obviously it's hard to have, you know, conviction on, on, on any of them, but I'm curious, did, did that make sense to you? And I'm curious what, what you think. No, it does. And I hear in other areas too, like, for example, comedian saying, hey, if I work through my trauma, I won't be funny anymore, right? But to me, that's sort of like a campaign that was sponsored by Big Depression. Like, I think that's the tricky voice in our head that we think if we lose what has been painful and motivated us, then we're going to lose our fire altogether. And I would say a lot of the time, sometimes the things that feel like they're pushing us forward are in some ways holding us back and we don't realize. So I would say there's really never going to be any downside to becoming emotionally healthier (laughs) because even if it pushes you less, perhaps in one area of your life, that's because you've decided that you're pushing for the wrong reasons and that there's something else that's more important to you. Yeah. Talk about, so uh, founders, uh, you know, some have coaches, some have therapists, some do both, you know, even beyond founders. Talk, talk about the the differences between uh, therapy and coaching and, and how are they similar and different? Yeah, this is a controversial topic. Obviously, I have a quarter million dollar chip on my shoulder from going through nine years of grad school. <laughs> and, you know, it feels really problematic that there aren't any kind of ethical regulations around coaching. And so for those reasons, I tell people to be very wary. I mean, there's terrible therapists out there too, but you have no idea what you're getting with coaching. So I tell people just to be careful. Um, in terms of the difference, though, my favorite definition that I've heard actually came from my friend Miha Baldwin, who I'm sure you've been in circles with him. And the way he ch- t- defines it, and he's a coach, and he's a coach who really seems to understand and navigate the difference between the two, is he says that therapy is about the exploration of self, who you are as a whole person, which will teach you how you engage with others. Whereas coaching is about the application of that knowledge professionally and the ability to figure out how you want to influence and support others in pursuit of the mission of an organization. Like, what's the professional world I want to create? To me, that's the difference between therapy and executive coaching. And, you know, I think in an ideal world, any kind of leader has both because I think that while there's some overlap, they they tackle different aspects of ourselves. 
Um, but I think the coaching industry rose out of this desire for people to have support, but feeling like therapy was only for really serious problems. And I guess what I want to kind of put out there is that therapists are trained to help people, even if they're not struggling with really serious problems. And that's part of our mission at COA is let's make sure that everyone who wants support can get it and can get it from someone who's trained for years and years to, to know how to do it right. Obviously, there's there's a bunch of different kinds of, of therapy. Could you give us sort of like a high level frame, framing or even some of the most popular ones in terms of like how to make sense of the, of the different approaches? Yeah. So the ones that people have heard of the most are probably CBT, that's cognitive behavioral therapy. And the idea with CBT is it's uh, symptom management. It's, you know, you're struggling with something and it's interfering with your life. And so you need help fixing, but the symptom itself is a big problem. So if you have such horrible anxiety that you can't get out of bed, then CBT might help you figure out how can I, you know, calm my anxiety well enough to get to the next step of things. That being said, most of the time, symptoms are pointing to something. If we quiet symptoms, but we never understand what they're trying to alert us to, then they're just going to pop up as different symptoms. So the other big category of therapy, and the one that I really subscribe to, is called psychodynamic therapy. And that approach is, one, it believes that the relationship that you have with your therapist is sort of meta and comes to represent all the relationships in your life, and you can use what's going on with them to understand other parts of your life. But two, it's about really cleaning out the wound. It's saying, hey, instead of silencing the symptom, let's listen to the symptom and figure out what it's trying to alert us to. And then let's actually fix it so that you're getting you know, longer term healing. So those are the two big ones. And then there's all kinds of other somatic therapy, which talks about how we feel things in our body and humanistic existential therapy is a great approach that focuses on the fact that we're all trying to make meaning and intrinsically meaningless existence and all the distress that that can bring up. And, you know, there's hundreds of approaches, but really what they've shown is the most important thing is that you feel an alliance with and support from your therapist. Totally. Is it fair to say that in some circles or certain like elite circles, going to therapy has evolved from what was maybe a stigma a decade ago to sort of a high status thing? Yeah, it's it's majorly changing. It's been cool to see how much more open people are. And, you know, we say stigma has changed through experience. So as these high profile people talk about their therapy, it gives more permission for other people to try it. The problem with it becoming a status symbol is that what that's reflecting is that therapy is really expensive. It's, you know, requires some privilege to be able to get into full yeah. therapy, which is a problem of becoming a therapist being so expensive and all of that. But I'd say the more people who feel permission to try it, the better. Yeah. I'm curious if between the idea that therapy is something you go to when, when you, you know, in a more reactive way to therapy is something that you go to, um, you know, sort of the way someone goes to a personal trainer. Was that sort of an evolution in, um, in how we thought about that? Or t- talk a little bit about that, that, that difference in terms of, you know, how, how, we, how we've thought about therapy and how that's evolved, if at all. It's a good question. I mean, I think part of the change has been a result of it becoming very clear that people who are not emotionally healthy are not going to succeed in the work that they're doing. And now all of a sudden companies are realizing, oh, this is worth investing in. And, you know, same with like, you know, years ago, we weren't really proactive with our physical health as a culture here. There was a whole lot of just waiting until you got sick later and then dealing with it. And then at some point, insurance company realized, oh, it actually costs less to support people in working out and eating well and sleeping than it does to not help with that and then try to fix their problems later. And I think a similar evolution is happening with mental health, where we're realizing it actually costs us a lot, not just financially, but you know, in terms of our time and our resources and our effort, all of that, it costs a lot more to wait until you're having panic attacks regularly than it did to 
figure out how to confront your anxiety in small amounts in an ongoing way proactively. So it's just, it's been great to see people waking up to that because I think psychologists have known that for a long time, but it hasn't always been supported. You know, we haven't always been told it's okay to talk about how we feel and tend to ourselves in this way and, you know, leave work to go to a therapy meeting the way we would if we were leaving for, you know, a physical health reason. How much of therapy to make sort of a simplistic uh, dichotomy is sort of affirming um, what someone thinks or helping them discover w- what they think uh, via, you know, questions versus sort of you know, more external, like advice, like it's kind of obvious, you know, this dyna- your dynamic that you're in doesn't seem to be working. I, how much of it is the former versus, versus the latter? Yeah, this I think is one of the myths of therapy. I mean, one of the myths of therapy is you only talk about the past and you're not moving forward. That's definitely not true. And I think another one is this idea that the therapist is just going to sit there and reflect back to you exactly what you've said and just ask questions and never actually help you move forward. And I'd say it's a mix of both. When I'm sitting with someone, if there's something obvious that they're not seeing that I'm seeing, I'm going to tell them about it. You know, yeah. I'm not going to sit there and hope that they get there at some <laughs> point themselves. But yeah, there's a lot of questions because if what you were going through was so easy to fix it that I could fix it by just telling you what to do differently, you would have figured it out already. Like we're complicated creatures. And something I say a lot is most people don't go to therapy because they don't know what to do. Most people go to therapy because they do know what to do, but need help understanding why they're not doing it. Right. So if I come and I'm like, oh, I wish that I was healthier, I could say, okay, well, sleep eight hours and eat better and exercise. It's like, duh, I know that's what I'm supposed to do. Why aren't I doing it? Why aren't I exercising, even though I know I should? And why am I, you know, drinking way more than I want to? And it's it's the why that people really need support with, yeah. not the what. And that's why, right. you know, we approach it that way. And how much of it is, is, when someone comes into you with either of those scenarios, how much of it is is like, you know, choice architecture perspective, like just take the drinks out of the thing or whatever, you know, um, versus like, hey, look, did your parents drink? You know, like going into... And what would you even call the second one? I, I, that's a sort of a crude um, sort of way of framing it. But like, h- how do you think about th- that, that question? I'd say it's both because let's say you're drinking so much that you're having problems at work or in your relationships or something. We probably need to figure out how to just help you drink a little less. That's where that yeah. CBT approach comes in. Does it mean not having alcohol around? Does it mean, you know, setting a reminder? Does it mean joining a support group? That kind of thing. But if you don't figure out why you're drinking, then that's just not going to help for that long. So in addition to putting those shock absorbers into place, there is going to be an idea of, hey, when you don't drink, what do you feel? Are you anxious? Are you sad? What do you, you know, what is it that you're trying to numb with this thing? And yeah, if your parents drank, I probably want to know about that because I'm sure that played a role in things. So it's just a lot of exploration. And what's interesting about really good therapy is you don't usually know where you're going to end up when you start. Like people will come into a session and say, I don't really know what to talk about. And by the end of the session, they're like, holy shit, where was all of that hiding? You know, you just don't know what you don't know. And you, if you can trust the process and you have a good clinician, you're going to get to places you wouldn't have even thought to ask for. Yeah. I want to segue a little bit to more sort of like macro um, topics around therapy. One is this sort of question, um, or I've heard this sort of analysis made by others where they talk about how the role of the therapist, you know, over the last like 50 years or something has, or even further has replaced sort of the role of the priest um, or what we, what most people used to have. Um, and that there were a couple or like one big, you know, simplistic uh, implication of that is that, and again, this, this is a simplification, but the idea that priests were probably more prescriptive um, in sort of like 
you're coming with your feelings, but sort of here's what, you know, our religion or, or uh, you know, says, uh, and they sort of help, helped you make sense of it in more of an external, um, you know, outside in type of way. Whereas, uh, you know, therapists today obviously don't operate from that same scripture uh, or that's, or that same external, you know, uh, in, in mindset and have more of an inside out, like what's going on for you. And, and what does that mean based on what you're, and, and that sort of helped institute this more idea around like my truth, as opposed to like, you know, this external truth that I need to change my feelings to ad- adapt to. Does that resonate uh, at all? Or how do you think about that? Yeah. I mean, if you think about it, religion is this prescribed set of values and a priest is going to help people figure out how to live their life based on those values. I think therapy is that's step two. Step one is what are your values? What are, what has the way you want to live your life? And in what ways is your behavior actually not correlating with that? Well, you know, so there is that first step of, you know, what feels true to you, the, what's your truth? I mean, that phrase feels so woo at this point, but it's true that we, what's important to us is different from person to person. And what's interesting is the things we care about and the way we act in our life are often just really opposite. And we don't know why we're doing that. And so in therapy, you have a chance to say, well, here's what's important to me, but here's what I'm pursuing. And why aren't these things in mind? Is it that my values aren't what I thought they were? Or is it that I'm self-sabotaging and getting in my own way and you know, going based on what I've learned instead of what I believe, that kind of thing? Well, you, you mentioned woo-woo, which I'm, I'm glad you did. What is sort of the, like, when does woo-woo begin and, and psychology or therapy end? <laughs> <laughs> I mean, what a big question. It's different for every person, I guess. I mean, I think there is an aspect of psychology and therapy that requires a bit of a leap of faith because, again, there's so much you don't know you don't know. And it is tough to say, okay, so I'm just going to sit here and talk about my feelings and my childhood and my hopes and my dreams. And I'm just going to like hope that you're not taking my money for bullshit reasons and that we're going to get somewhere. And it's just a little better experience than explain because you know, I can tell you as a patient, not as a therapist, that there really is this kind of magical feeling process that happens over time that comes from just putting words to things and having someone who's trained to help you understand what's happening inside you reflect that back to you. And there really is this transformation that happens over time that requires a little bit of belief. And I know that that can be tough, that there are people who really want things to be metric driven and empirically validated. And I understand the desire for that. But I think the desire for that is a wish for things to be simple in life that aren't simple. Like who we are is very complicated. And so the solution to get to where we want to go is also going to be complicated. Yeah, I I think some people have been, you know, somewhat skeptical with the sort of personal trainer um, analogy only because with with physical fitness, it's probably easier to see the gains. Like, hey, I'm coming here, I'm going to get stronger. And who knows, maybe you're going to get injured because you're not being flexible or whatever. So, you know, sometimes those gains can be misleading, but they typically tend to be more legible. Whereas emotionally, it it might be harder because it's harder to track sort of our our development there. And, And then there's also just this concern that some people have around like, are the incentives totally aligned? Like there's one version in which, yeah, it's aligned. I'm getting more emotionally fit. And I'm going to keep doing this because it's just leading to, you know, more and more growth. There's, there's another version of it's like, I'm, you know, the, the more depressed or whatever, the more sad I, I get, the more I, I need this, you know, person and thus like our, our incentives totally align in the same way of like dating apps or something. It's like, if I find someone, then I won't use this thing, you know, how do you sort of uh, re- respond to that? I don't know. I think therapists see their job a little like a parent, which is if you're doing your job well, the person doesn't need you forever, but that it does take some time. And 
the idea that you're going to feel worse before you feel better is pretty common in therapy. You're unearthing all of this yeah. stuff. You know, a therapist isn't putting sadness in you. They're revealing your sadness and they're helping you understand it. You know, a good therapist has a really long waiting list at this point, I can tell you, and they're not incentivized to just keep taking your money if they're not being helpful. I think there is, though, this respect for the fact that it is going to take time to change things that took your entire life to form. And, you know, if you rush it, then you're not really doing yourself a service. So I understand the misalignment, but I think that's a big fear. And I think the fear comes from people's worry of being vulnerable and seen more than it comes from their worry about being swindled. Like, yeah. you know, yeah. I think that's just not as big of a problem as people think it is. Yeah. Talk about trauma a, a, a little bit more. And you know, you're, you're the expert. I, I know very little. I, I read two books that sort of had different, you know, analyses of what's happening. One was that the body keeps score. Um, and the other was uh, the mind is flat and the mind is flat was more arguing that a lot of it is sort of like, I don't want to say simplify by saying in our head, but sort of like we make and the courage to be disliked also in that guy, like we make it more real by like honor, like affirming it and speaking to it and sort of like deriving this like, you know, narrative um, from it that other people then affirm. And, and, and it's, it's, it's sort of like, there's a victim thing that, that comes from it. Whereas, um, you know, the body keeps score definitely doesn't say that. And, and other people say, in fact, we have a lot more trauma to unearth than we realize. And, and if we do, it's going to, uh, be very empowering. H- how do you think about that? I believe that anything that we don't look at and feel and understand and confront, we carry around with us all the time. Like, yeah, there's such a thing as over ruminating and obsessing about things. But normally when a person is obsessing about something, it's because they don't really understand it. And the idea in therapy is how can we see what you haven't been able to see before? I think you really can feel through things, you know? I mean, I think grief is a great example. Like think of the person who never let themselves grieve versus the person who really took some proper time to grieve and feel through the loss. They're going to be in a completely different place years later, because until you actually confront what's going on inside you, it's going to stick with you. You know, it it feels, I guess, ghost-like in that way. So yeah, I mean, yes, we can obsess and that's not great, but I'd say again, that comes from people's worry about what it means to actually feel tough things and wanting it to be true that if we just ignore something, it'll go away. And that's just not how it works. Yeah. One thing I'm often curious about is like, Things like grief, for example, grief is, uh, you know, time memorial, uh, you know, what's the Jewish um, ceremony when someone passes away? Shiva. Shiva? Yeah. So, you know, people have been, like, there, there are some sort of uh, emotions or responses to things that are, you know, that we've been doing for, you know, thousands of years. And, and there are others that seem more like, if, if not uniquely, perhaps, you know, uh, more emphasized just based on the, you know, the cultural milieu that we've sort of grown up in and, and the water that we swim in um, sort of culturally, you know, a hundred years ago, you know, psychology didn't exist. Right. So like, and, you know, they got it in different forms or, or but like, how do you think about, uh, I don't mean to delegitimize, you know, sort of behaviors that are, that are new versus t- time memorial, but how do you sort of, what comes to mind when I sort of bring, bring this topic up? I mean, I guess, I guess what comes to mind is I think one, there are things we've been doing for a really long time that we've lost, lost touch with that we need to get back in touch with yeah. the importance of community 
you know, that the process of sitting Shiva is actually really psychologically smart. You know, it, it gives you a clear and contained time to feel what you're feeling. And then you feel permission to move on afterwards, that kind of thing. Um, you know, so many of our relationships are being replaced by technology. Now we're more connected, but feeling more isolated than ever. So there's some things I think we need to get back to that are the problem. And then there are other things that I think have been a problem for a long time, but now we're fixing, like, for example, it being okay for men to talk about their feelings publicly. And, you know, there, there are other things that I think the switch needs to be made. So I'd say it's kind of a yes and situation. I want to go back to to to, to founders uh, because you you spend a lot of time with them. What what sort of common cha- in what ways are founders making it harder for themselves th- than they than they need to? And uh, what what are ways in which they can make it less hard for themselves? That's a good question. I mean, the answer to that is unique in the sense that, however, a founder is making things harder in their life for themselves everywhere, they're probably also doing it in their company. So, yeah. you know, if they are not good at communicating expectations anywhere else in their life with their partner, with their friends, whatever, they're probably also not doing a great job of that in their company. So whatever problems you're seeing in your company, it's probably worth working out for everywhere and vice versa. Other things I see, though, are not asking for help and support enough. That's just such a big problem. Like, I get that to be a founder, you have to believe in yourself as this extraordinary person who can do amazing things. But if you're not willing to lean on others when you need to, you're going to be in big trouble. And then really anything that's a strength of yours as a founder will flip on you and become a big weakness if you don't keep an eye on it. So someone who is... Um, you know, makes decisions quickly and easily. That's great until you get to the point that you haven't been thoughtful enough about the decisions that you're making, that kind of thing. So I think examine what are your biggest strengths and think about how they could turn on you. I think that's really important and ask for help sooner. So with VCs, for example, so many founders I talk to are like, oh, I want to I wanna ask for help with this, but they're evaluating me and I don't want them to know I'm struggling. And I've talked to enough VCs who are like, geez, I really wish that they would come to us earlier. I really wish they would come tell us there was an issue way before it got super bad. Yeah, it's interesting. I'm, I'm curious how you think about sort of um, group, group therapy in context of what we've been doing. Because one, and not to simplify, you know, even one element of group therapy, but one thing I've found for myself is, and it seems somewhat obvious, but I don't like structure for it is this idea that like when I'm going through problems, when I hear other people who are going through similar problems or, or like worse problems or manifestations of similar problems, um, there's some, and I don't mean not in a short inferred way, but there's something that is just calming uh, about, I guess it's just perspective. We are comparative creatures, you know, by definition. And so like leaning into that a, a little bit when it supports you <laughs> um, and maybe not when it, when it hurts you, what, what do you think about that? Yeah, I mean, I think that one of the defining characteristics of almost all mental health struggles is that they're good at convincing us we're alone in it. Depression is so good at making us feel like we're the only person who feels this bad. Anxiety is good at making us feel like we're the only person who's this worried. And so there's something very powerful about saying, oh, no, we're not alone. And that community aspect of knowing that there are others who are going through something is really powerful. I actually read a study done by Irvin Yalom. He's like the lead person when it comes to group therapy. And he wanted to know what is it that people find most useful about group therapy. And so he uh, interviewed hundreds and hundreds. I mean, it was in the thousands, I think, of people who'd gone through group therapy about when they felt most helped by group therapy. And, you know, it was things like when the leader said something really interesting or when someone else gave me a suggestion or whatever. But what he found was that overwhelmingly, the thing that people stated as the moment when they felt most helped by group therapy was then when they were being helpful to someone else, when Mm -hmm. they suggested something 
that helped another person. That was what felt the most useful because we want to believe that we're important and having a positive effect on other people and that we have agency and good ideas. And there's something so amazing about knowing, hey, this thing I'm struggling with, you're struggling with, we can help each other with it. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's really interesting. My, my friend is into, into this thing called social prescribing, which I think is a new version of like, there is something in, in healthcare where people try to it, it, treat people by basically encouraging them to like volunteer or get more active or, or contribute to, to local causes as it, you know, among other things. Yeah, um, focusing on providing value is huge. Yeah, totally. There's a VC joke somewhere, somewhere in there, but I, I won't make it. <laughs> Maybe gearing toward, towards closing here, to say more about how, how founders or, or just people listening can, uh, can, can get involved, can, can be more emotionally fit and, and use COA to, to do so. Oh, I'd love to share. So COA, you can find all about us at joincoa.com, J-O-I-N-C-O-A.com. If you're in California, New York, and more states coming soon, we can help you match to a really amazing vetted therapist. All of our therapists have five to 35 years of experience. And we also do these therapist-led classes. So all of our content is created by and facilitated by therapists. We have series for founders specifically. We have series for leaders. We have series for BIPOC leaders, female identifying leaders, all kinds of groups of people. And it's just a chance to work on this stuff and take some of these tools into your life. So head over there. We hope that you'll join us. Awesome. And and say a bit more in terms of what can motivate people to 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 get started or or, or keep pushing? Because we were talking about in, in the physical fitness, sometimes it's easier to, to see those gains. What, what are sort of equivalents within emotional fitness, or or how do, how do you advise people to in terms of who are you know seeking the extra push to get started or keep going? This can look like so many things. I mean, a quote I love is therapy is a little like music lessons for four years. It doesn't feel like anything's happening. And then suddenly you can play the piano. And there is an element of that, right? Where it's a little hard to measure as you're going, but then all of a sudden you're going to look around and be like, holy shit, my life is just so much better. My relationships are better. I'm able to manage frustration better. I feel less obsessive. I'm less anxious. I am feeling more fulfillment. I feel more excited about what I'm doing. It's easier to make decisions. I mean, anything you can think of that has anything to do with the relationship you have with yourself or other people is going to be improved by this work. Awesome. That's a, that's a great place to wrap. I've, uh, I've enjoyed your, your writings and following you over the years, and I'm excited for um, people listening in to, uh, to check out more uh, of Emily's work uh, and would recommend that they do so. And then also, of course, uh, check out COA. Uh, thanks for coming to the podcast, Emily. Thank you so much. It's been great. If you're an early stage entrepreneur, we'd love to hear from you check us out at villageglobal.vc.